Hello, welcome to Christmas Actually with Luke Allen and Lara Collier, the podcast that takes a look at the Richard Curtis film Love Actually, one day at a time. It's Wednesday the 16th of December, actually. I'm one of your hosts, Luke Allen. I'm joined, as always, with my co-host, Lara Collier. Konnichiwa. And our two special guests, Sarah Black. Hi. Welcome. And Nicholas J. Barlow. Hello. So before we get started, would you both like to, in whichever order you choose, say a little bit about who you are? So I'm Sarah Black, and I am a communication professor and I have a podcast titled Life as a Playlist, where I discuss music commentary along with social and political commentary, sharing life stories. Brilliant. And it's a, it's a great show that I listen to, like, for, for a while, I listened to every day on the bus to college until I was caught up. And then suddenly I realized that I'm now behind. So I'm listening back through it <laughs> through the well, next few you. episodes now. Um, so, and uh, Nicholas, who, who are you? <laughs> Who am I? Um, th- this I have to say this reminds me much like much of mine. Uh, yeah, so uh, I, ho- I I'm in another podcaster. Surprise, surprise. Um, and I host a podcast called the Unscripted Podcast, uh, an entertainment and creative sector centered podcast where I interview um, upcoming and well known people of the industry. Um, and yeah, I mean, I'm also a sick former. And I'm a poet as well. I'll, I'll probably plug my stuff at the end of the episode. Yeah. So if you really want to listen until then, you've got that. Anyway. Yeah, what I love about your unscripted podcast is the complete lack of editing. There's something really refreshing <laughs> about just hearing an actual conversation. Like, and I like that. I like that you, you start the episode with you talking to them before you do the intro. It, it's got such a, a lovely sort of fly on the wall experience of listening to it. Exactly. Um, yeah, I don't. I don't like to over edit. So also, I'm too lazy to bother editing at the moment. So I thought <laughs> I know what's missing within the scene: completely unedited stuff, and it's almost like a game. <laughs> uh, especially when the internet's utter crap. Um, when you'll have one person for about a minute saying, "Hi, hello, is anyone there?" And I just keep it in. Um, it's very fun. Yeah, that's good, and. Yeah, I kind of wish I could be like that. I think I said to you before, I'm a I'm a paranoid editor. So like I'll be doing something and then it'll be like, I said that, that probably won't offend someone, but in case like one percent of the listenership gets offended, we're cutting that out, we're changing this. Oh, this misinterpretation, this sounds slightly different to how I meant it. I I, I get so paranoid editing. Uh. <laughs> I can relate to that. I'm always thinking like how's somebody going to perceive this, but I also get to be a lazy editor since I just get Robert to edit most of my stuff for me. So Yeah, that was that was my relief with two minutes about time. It was like yes. if I forget anything, Robert will fix it. Uh, yes. He's not fixing this show, so when stuff go bad go wrong, it's my fault, listeners. When stuff go bad wrong. <laughs> <laughs> like that. Um, so uh, what a what are both of your experiences with the film Love Actually? So it was kind of funny. I saw this film many years ago, and then I saw it twice recently, once a few weeks ago when um, Robert was watching it, and then once just last night in preparation for 
today. Yeah, I saw on Robert's letterbox, and yeah. I was like, "Oh yeah, he had to he had to sit through it again." <laughs> yeah. Well, it was actually his suggestion because I was like, eh, "I saw it a month ago. I'm good. I'll just watch the scenes." And then he's like, "No, I know you. You're an over preparer. You're gonna want to see everything, and that's entirely true." So, for me, this <laughs> film is a it's a mixed bag. Like there are a lot of things that I like about it. Some of the storylines for me are stronger than others. Some of the things that I struggle with isn't really a problem with the film so much as a problem with myself. I have a really short attention span for not for like content, but for so many characters and faces. Like I'm terrible with faces <laughs> and I'm terrible with like lots of quick scene changes. So for to yeah, keep up that. with so many yeah characters and keep faces straight it's like i would have almost wanted a slower story with fewer characters like some of the some of it is so great but i would have just wanted more time to invest in characters beyond a surface level but it is really entertaining and some of the storylines are great so yeah i like i the, the one thing i find relieving about this film is i am also awful with like character names and whatnot that because there's so many characters in this it doesn't feel bad to just name the actor or say or oh, what was that character called <laughs> because of that um, yeah <laughs> so, a, a i'm relieved that the transcript i've downloaded off the internet has the characters names but also occasionally when we're talking about it i'll just say like ah oh, martin freeman or i'll say colin firth or yeah that bloke and yeah. because there's so many characters it it works uh what about you nicholas what's your experience with this as a film um i mean considering it's roughly the same age as i am um it's kind of been around me for for my whole life i mean same mm. with yourself lara uh but i i have to say what well, when did i first watch it probably when i was 13 or 14 yeah, possibly younger that. um and of course, you don't pick up on everything at that age. So, watching it more recently, probably about uh, Christmas last year, as in in its entirety, not like coming in when it when it's on the TV and you're watching the last half because you like the film, but of course you don't want to record it. Um, I, I I've noticed more as I get older with the film than uh, when I was younger. Of course, it was funny. Uh, anything with Rowan Atkinson is bound to be funny. Um, and, yeah, uh, with with the clip that we'll be discussing today, I've watched it way too many times. I now I now have a an eidetic memory for um, Martin Freeman's sex scenes, which is certainly interesting. No, I, I found that because it's two minutes quite often like most nights recently when i've been like about to shut off my computer i've been like as eh, a two minute clip for the for the podcast i might as well watch that again before i go to bed break some make some more notes that yeah same here it's kind of like yep i know this one way better than i know the other ones because the other ones we've had have been like 10 minutes long this one i can easily watch when i've got two minutes to spare yeah. uh but yeah it's it's um as soon as I realised that all of these scenes are in one episode, it was like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think next episode we've got the entire payoff of Colin's story, which is definitely another Yay! discussion in itself. Because um, I don't know what I think about that. <laughs> I've been trying oh, to I figure out my views on so it much. for so long, because it both that. doesn't work and works, and I don't get how or why. Uh, but we'll, we'll go straight to this scene with Colin. It's... Uh, 
What does it say? Uh, it's one week to Christmas at this point. Colin says, hey, Tony, what are you doing here? Had to rent out my flat to pay for my ticket. You're actually going ahead with this genuinely stupid plan. I bloody am. Think this is full of clothes like hell it is. It's chock-a-block full of condoms. <laughs> and that was, uh, yeah. And I've been I've been rewatching through a lot of my family recently. So, like, I realize how Chris Marshall kind of just plays the same guy. <laughs> oh. I don't know whether, Sarah, do you get the sitcom yes. My Family in America at all? No, I've never seen it. It's a, it's a very good sort of quite classic. It's only it started in two thousand, but it's a very sort of classic style British sitcom of just a family that don't get along with each other. And Chris Marshall plays like the the um, the eldest son in the family, and basically his dad just excludes him out of everything because he doesn't like him. Oh no, and that's it. But it's it, it's played for comedy until like right. when we watched yeah. it recently. It's been kind of like. Actually, he's really horrible to his son. <laughs> like when you take, take him uh, sit back, it's like, yeah, like like for example, there's like this whole scene where he's uh, he's heading off for a funeral, I think, and he asks his youngest son and his daughter. Then he says, oh, "I guess I'll have to go on my own then," and just completely oh. ignore that Chris Marshall's there. <laughs> and it's just, oh. it's I a, mean, it's with, what what I would say with that is that you can take that and think. When you look at most British comedy, we honestly love putting characters into situations which they really aren't suited for, um, yeah. especially in the traditional, uh, by traditional, I mean, our classics of British comedy, Faulty Towers and the, that area. Um, I mean, if you look at Faulty Towers with a more analytical eye and a less this-is-comedy eye, do you realise that it's actually quite dark? <laughs> yeah. I, well, there's an episode with a dead body, isn't there? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but I mean, with, with like even like not going out, for example, I love that show. But every episode involves around him telling a lie and then having to cover up the lie he's told. And it's like it's a very simple formula which you don't actually realize until you start thinking about it. Um, and it's fine. <laughs> Suspend your disbelief, and it's fine here. Uh, but I do like the choice of casting of Chris Marshall in this because he doesn't do many feature films, I don't think. I mean, is, is there anything else Chris Marshall's known for in the States at all, uh, Sarah? No, I mean, to be honest, I didn't really know who he was outside of this film. But I'll have something to look forward to ah. when we get to watch. <laughs> that's, that's interesting because he's, yeah. yeah, he's he's kind of, he's an interesting um comedy actor he does this he does a show called death in paradise which what? i've only seen bits of but lara is a fan of my Love dad it. also really enjoys it uh, for a while he was um a guy who was um rumored to be playing the next doctor before jodie whittaker was cast hmm. i still wish that he gets cast at some point because he'd be incredible in that role he definitely yeah. was um it, it was one of those where it was so rumored and like all of the clues with him like dropping out of death in paradise and everything else like lined up perfectly that people took it as fact uh and uh see so, yeah, i mean what do we think of this whole exchange between colin and tony overall colin's a whole ass mood that's all i can say on this <laughs> situation i think it's hilarious i actually i really like this scene it's just it's 
hilarious because it's so silly. It's like, <laughs> you have a bag full of condoms and my like logical, straightforward brain's always like, why don't you just go to the States and buy condoms <laughs> there? You're going to pay to shit. But it's just so funny. And it is true. Like American women really do like guys with British accents. <laughs> there were like people I work with who were just like, I don't know, always just wanted the guy with the accent or with like two women I was friends with. They would always kind of brag because their husbands were British and they would like always talk about their British accent. So it's kind of a cliche, but it's actually true. So I think it was kind of a brilliant plan. Nicholas, let's try to America. Yeah. <laughs> hey, wait, hang on. Are the, wait, are the guys in America attract, attracted to British accents? Because like... This girl's so single, it's painful. Yeah, I, I'm sure they would be. I mean, I just was, because this is my thing, is always like researching everything. And I read a an actual research study from 2018 that said Americans associate British accents, both men and women, with class, style, intelligence, and competence. So there you, there you go. Whoop, whoop. <laughs> Even Chris Marshall? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know about maybe class or intelligence. They're associating it with hotness or something. I mean, he's got that, so. It's like the dorky hot thing, but for American. Like, I believed it. It's so silly, but, like, I believe that if he if he came here, that that would actually happen. That is that um, that actually surprised me a lot because I was kind of thinking with especially with your focus on like social issues and stuff I was thinking you would have a massive problem with this whole part of the film so that's that that surprised me. I mean, it's true. Like it is, it is super sexist, but it's also I don't know. Research backs him up. It's so over the top that it's kind of yeah. Like it kind of. I think like you don't take it seriously, right? Exactly. So yeah. I think the joke is in the fact that he does succeed because right. you spend the entire film waiting for him to fail. That the fact that he does, it's kind of, whilst it doesn't work on repeat viewing, that first moment, I kind of wish I could remember that first moment because I'd imagine it'd be pretty funny. <laughs> I think it would have been it would have been better if there was almost a scene towards the end um, where he, Tony asks him how his time was, and he just says, "Ah, nothing much." Like if there was something like that, I think that might have even given it a better payoff. I do, I do like the the Colin story. I, it's one which I need to edit into a short film, like I have with the um, Daniel and Sam story, to see how it would stand on its own. Um, because the I think a lot of people, and I myself included, did consider this and have said on the show it's one of the weakest stories. But also, it is one of the only ones that actually gets set up and paid off. Mm. Like it's it's a story in it. It's a proper story in itself. Whereas I'm still going to hate on it. I don't like Sarah and Carl's story. I couldn't care less about either of them. I care more about Colin succeeding than about whether Sarah gets with Carl. Yeah, I didn't really care about Sarah and Carl's storyline much either. (laughs) And this one is just... They're just purely irrelevant. It's just like really good comedic relief. Because some of the film is actually quite serious. So... Yes, especially we've got a bit coming up in probably about... I'd say about 10 minutes from now within the film with Emma Thompson and the Joni Mitchell CD. So we need something. Yeah. Um, and obviously the music oh. is oh my great gosh. in the film, which I'm sure 
I will get to talk to I meant to, to say about. this in the beginning, but not to get too off topic. The soundtrack for this film is phenomenal. I definitely want to do an episode about the soundtrack. I mean, there are so many songs that I love yes. in this film. I mean, like favorite favorites and ones that I have like childhood stories about and just like, I love Pointer Sisters Jump, the use of that in the film. I love The Calling Wherever You Will Go. That has like deep personal significance to me. I love All You Need Is Love. When Sarah, her youngest, was little, she used to go around and sing All You Need Is Sarah, which sounds really narcissistic, but was really cute when she was like three. <laughs> but I just, I love the music in this film. Yeah, it, it, it's great. And um, Have we got anything more to say about Colin and Tony before we move on to Jack and Judy? Um. Only that Tony's definitely a time traveller. Yes. Oh, oh. Yes. yes. <laughs> That's one of my thoughts. He changed his shirt as well. Which is like, yeah, you changed clothes for work, but not when it's basically the same style. <laughs> There's no point. So uh yeah, we'll move on to Jack and Judy. Uh oh dear. one note about Jack and Judy is I've been watching through the Nativity films recently. Right. Oh no. Um Oh wow. Oh wow, that must and- um yeah. Yeah. So, but what the interesting thing is, the first film has got Martin Freeman as the lead. Second yeah. film, David Tennant replaces Martin Freeman, but his wife is played by Joanna Page. Oh, f- yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, it, it took me by surprise. I was like, oh, Joanna Page is in this film. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, I, I just like the Nativity films. I don't know whether it'll be out by this point, but I'm currently uh, doing an, preparing an episode of Please Be Seated. We're bringing it back for Christmas to tackle Nativity 2, Danger in the Manger. It's going to be good fun. Right. As much as those movies are great, and like I know we're not supposed to be talking about Nativity, we're supposed to be talking about Love Actually, but technically they're linked. <laughs> Christmas. Like, yeah, Christmas. That is how they're linked. But anyway... I don't know what it is, but I, I'm just not a fan of the second or third two. Right, truth be told, I haven't seen the third one. I've only seen snippets, but I just don't like the second and third. First and second like one work for me. Third and fourth, no. They're the fourth? <laughs> yeah, and Mr. Mr. Poppy's not even in it. It's his twin brother, oh. also called Mr. Poppy. Oh, Wait, no. Which, which one's the fourth one? Is that the one that like came That's, out last year? Yeah, Nativity Rocks. Was it last oh. year or two years ago? I don't know. Uh, the, one... the only... The only redeeming factor is oh, what's his name? The guy in it who was on Jurassic in one of the big Les Mis productions, um, and he's a he's a good actor. And like when it when he when we were watching it, my sister was like, "It's him," and I've forgotten what his name is. But he's he's basically everyone's favorite on Jurassic, Um and I need to find yes. out. I mean, that kind of makes sense because it seems with the cast of the fourth film. I know this is completely off topic, but. Um, because the Birmingham rep's so close, they had a nativity stage play. That was yes, just I've been meaning to there. catch it when it, yeah. it, it it toured for a bit. I think. Yeah, and the cast of that stage play, or the original casting, I believe, uh, is somewhat the same as that fourth film. Even though I've never watched either of the fourth film or the stage play, I just recognise the faces. So that might be the reason why. Argeras is um, the yeah. It was um, it was Ramin uh, Karimlu, I think. I don't know how to pronounce it, but he is a very good Argeras. He played Valjean at one point as well. So shout out guest on the show. Uh, get in touch, Luke at Lucarns at Uh 
that would be such a weird email to get that it just turns out Ramen was listening and waiting for us to to mention his name on a Love Actually podcast. <laughs> it would also be weird if you were Ramen, wouldn't it? If you were listening to something and then they mentioned a film which has got nothing to do with this, with the podcast, and then they mentioned you by name as well. That would be cool. I mean- I mean, you never know. He could just be a massive geek of the minute by minute film podcast thing. You're just like he's just, he's just wait. He was waiting to get in touch for Lara and my Les Mis podcast next year, but then when we shouted him out here, it was like <laughs> I don't know when we're going to find the time to do that show. But <laughs> don't, worry, don't worry, we can do it. We'll manage. Um, I'm also working on Bernard and the Genie. That'll be fun. But yeah, uh, so should we should we move on to Jack and Judy? Yes. I've got this this dreaded moment on pause on my screen at the moment that I (laughs) I glanced at when we're talking, just like, oh, yeah, that's a thing. (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, weirdly, last time I watched this film, uh, because I've been doing my own rewatch through Richard Curtis films with my family recently, we watched it, uh, Love Actually, a couple of weeks ago. I found myself weirdly way more invested in Jack and Judy's story than I thought I was. Like they were one of my one of the stories that I actually was most invested in, which really surprised uh, me. <laughs> I love them. I think they have the most normal relationship, probably the most healthy relationship in the entire film. Yeah. I think that's what Robert said when he was on as well. Actually, <laughs> I'm not surprised. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which I, which at first I thought was a silly comment, and then the more I'm like, I don't know, true. Like it, it, they're just and it's, at work. I wish there was more. Yeah. I wish there was more because it would be quite funny to see more of their discomfort with intimacy and whatnot whilst doing stuff like this. Um, but like both of these people weren't that well known either, which is quite interesting. Like Martin Freeman and Joanna Page are fairly successful actors now. Martin Freeman definitely. Mm-hmm. Joanna Page is uh, pretty good. Um, Gavin and Stacey, I'm a big fan of, and I heard her voice today in an advert for I think it was Dreams, the bed company. Mm-hmm. Really? Yeah, I was. I had. I was just like the adverts thing were on. That sounds like Joanna Page. Um, It might just be be another random Welsh person, but it sounded like Joanna Page, and I'm assuming it was. Um, Well, also she played Queen Elizabeth the First in Doctor Who, in Day of the Doctor, uh, which was surprising when I realised that (laughs) because she seems very different in that episode. Um, But yeah, no, I think. Fiona Wurr, who does the casting for this, is really good at catching people before they hit it as really famous. Mm. She also did About Time, and there's some people in that, like Margot Robbie, for example, who were just about to become really famous. But at that point, we're also nobodies. Mm. So shout out to Fiona Wurr, guest on the show. Um, So yeah, I'm going to go through the dialogue here. Um, Tony, in a different shirt, says... uh, Excellent, excellent, perfect. Keep that going, keep that going. Uh, and John says, uh, look, sorry for being a bit forward, but you don't fancy going for a Christmas drink, do you? I mean, nothing implied. We could just maybe go and see something Christmassy or something. Obviously, don't want to, if you don't have to. I just, oh, I'm rambling now, sorry. She says, no, that would be lovely. Oh, great, yay. And we won't talk about what they're doing in this scene, but it's a thing that, like what they've been doing in other scenes... <laughs> <laughs> yeah for, for, I, I mean what I think do you want to be forward with what they're doing or shall we just let people assume can we want, I can cut it out it's just whatever we say we're making more editing work for <laughs> <laughs> I, I'll happily shut up then 
I don't, I, I don't know what the level is of keeping a podcast rated clean on iTunes. I don't know what level because if people are listening to this and they haven't seen Love Actually, then they're a minority of the listenership. But uh, then they move to other positions um, and they have this exchange of, uh, you know, that is really great. Normally I'm really shy about this sort of thing. Um, <laughs> takes me ages to get the coverage up, so thank you. It's, it's, it's a very good gag, really. Which is, as I said, I wish we had, I wish we got more of their shyness. Um, because also, like, Martin Freeman is really good at that sort of role. What, nervous and quirky? Yeah, he has. I don't think he's done like romantic comedy lead or not mainstream, but he'd be very good in that sort of role. Yeah, yeah. I think I even mean, even at his age now, I think he'd manage it. Yeah, I mean, what would you? I don't know how mainstream nativity is. I'd say it's quite mainstream, wouldn't you say that that's romantic comedy? Uh, to an extent, Sarah, have you seen nativity? No. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Fez, I think it's a very very British film. It's, oh, it's, it is. Oh, extremely. It, it proves his improvisational skills as well. Oh, yeah. Wait, hmm, there's only one thing in there that I just think is like, that's just not British at all. It's when they go to the hospital. Like, that's not British at all. At all. Do you not think? I don't even. No, I'm sorry, but I don't think that's British. Like, you come on. I, uh, I've spent like a fair amount of time in hospital and like. That just does not happen. They do not let people, especially well, no. a bunch. But well, the, the, the whole the whole film is a suspension of disbelief in places. But also, sure that is, is going to be one of the only scenes that is would have been scripted and planned. Like, because most of the nativity films, uh, at least the first one, are not scripted, and that's why they're so charming. Because <laughs> oh, it's just kids being kids. Like they will have gone into the scene and been told, like by the director. You need to have this needs to have happened by the end of the scene, but outside of that, it's just kids doing what they want, and then they edit a story around it, which I think is is oh, just great. Crap, did not know that. I mean, it's a bit it's a bit like how um, they uh, did Outnumbered. Yes, exactly. And there was another film made by the people who made Outnumbered called What We Did on a Holiday. Uh, with, yeah, uh, David Tennant, uh, Rosamund Pike, and Billy Crystal. Not Billy Crystal, Billy Connolly. Billy C, my head is weird at the moment. Um, and yeah, that's a really good movie. Uh, have, have any of you seen What We Did on a Holiday? No. Nope. Uh, it, it rings a very vague bell, but not terribly. It has a very odd twist about halfway through where the entire tone of the film changes. Uh, <laughs> would the listeners and you like me to spoil what happens in What We Did on a Holiday? <laughs> I mean, you can cut it out if you need to, but it depends how bad so, uh, you spoil it. Um, I don't. Well, it's halfway through the film, so it's not like a twist at the end. But essentially, it sets itself up as a film about these these two parents who haven't who, who are divorced and have got kids, but they're off to the granddad's birthday party, so they have to pretend they're together again in order to not upset him because he's quite ill. And it's like a big grand birthday party. Partway through. Um, the kids are out with the granddad on the beach and they're just talking about death and he's talking about how he jokes that like if he when when he dies he wants a viking funeral and then about 10 20 minutes later he just suddenly dies so the kids take his body make a raft set it on fire and set it off on the beach and then tell the parents that their granddad's died on his birthday party it's, it's really funny really sweet 
really sad. It's it's such a good movie. It's one of my favorite films. What I'm learning so is so shout out what we did on our holidays. British. Salute, I need you to make a list of British films I should watch because clearly I've been missing out on like everything. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, okay, the final one that I will mention, um, which uh, I definitely talked about with Robert a lot. So whether he mentioned any of this to you, who knows? Is a film called Keeping Mum. No, we haven't talked about it. Uh, Okay, so uh, Rowan Atkinson is in it. He plays a vicar, one of the only serious characters. Kristen Scott Thomas is his wife, who's secretly having an affair with Patrick Swayze. Um, And essentially, uh, Maggie Smith plays this this nanny who comes to sort out the problems in the family. Like, they've got kids and they've got... And she just sorts out, solves all their problems. Then it turns out she's solving their problems by killing the people that causes them. And Maggie Smith is secretly an escaped serial killer. Mm. And it's, oh, it's so yeah. funny. She's just killing these people and burying them in the lake at the back of the house. It's effective. And it's, just, <laughs> oh, it's, it's a it's a very very funny film. Like I think one of my favorite ones is she's uh, she's on a walk with this with the little boy of the family who's getting bullied at school, and then there's just these um, uh, like the, these bullies on their bikes are chasing him, and she just says like just wish really hard as to what you want to happen, and he closes his eyes and he wishes. And then it turns out that she'd cut the brakes on their bikes and they all no. just, they all just fall off and die. Oh my life. It's a hilarious movie and hardly anyone knows about it. But I did Wait, once have a again? keeping mum. Thank you. Um, I did once have a chat with um, at a Comic Con for Please Be Seated with the actresses that, um, that played the twins in The Shining. And one of them said it's her favourite film. Oh, nice. Which was kind of like, wow, I didn't know <laughs> that it was, yeah, it was, I might just watch it again soon. And it's filmed in the, uh, the same town as the Cornwall scenes in About Time. It's the same church uh, as the wedding scene in About Time as well. Fun. Because Steve Mortimer did the locations for both. And he's a nice guy. Shout out to Steve. Um, he came on an episode of Two Minutes About Time and he's just a, a great guy to chat with. Because uh, very few people uh, would just uh, agree to a random phone call when you track down their phone number and say, "Will you come on my podcast?" Uh, but he did. Um, he, he he must he he must get used to being stalked. Then I, I don't know whether it's just. <laughs> well, no, like... I think I think it was I think it was something to do with like IMDb Pro. So whether his number was listed on IMDb Pro or his website was, and then from his website I could find his number. It wasn't like a big stalkery thing, but I found him and I called him and like. He told me afterwards that he was he thought it was a cold call at first and then he realized that no, we just wanted to talk about about time. Uh yeah. I think that's awesome. I admire that level it's not... of tenacity. I wish I was yeah. more like that. So well, how, how did you start that conversation? Was it like Hi, hello, and he just said, Who the hell are you or what? I was just like I went straight in, I'm like, Hi, I know this sounds weird, but I'm one of the hosts of a podcast that looks at the film about time two minutes at a time and we'd love you to come on and talk about like two minutes of the film and yeah it was it was, uh, it was good um so uh, have we got anything more to say about jack and judy i think i'm good um yeah i think i think that's all there okay we get a shot of daniel walking past sam's room and uh drums are playing and am i right that this is what kicks off the next piece of music I think yeah so. i think so i can't remember what the song is because i've been listening to the soundtrack recently yeah, and that's check. my fault. I should, <laughs> I should have the note on that, and I don't because I was. 
There's so much I love about this storyline that I was just... Yes. <laughs> well, my... um, I had the soundtrack for Love Actually years ago. And then when I started like preparing for the show, I found out that my case didn't have the disc in it. Oh, no. Um, I spent ages looking for it because I don't want to like order it. Even though it's only a couple of yeah. quid, I didn't want to order it on Amazon. Like, no, owning it. And then eventually I gave up this week and I ordered it and it came yesterday. So I have been listening to the Love Yay. Actually soundtrack recently. Uh, but I can't remember which one. And it is such a good soundtrack. Um, yeah, it's. I, I forgot how many great pieces of music are in this film. Um, there's a couple which come on the soundtrack and I'm like, I don't remember when this is, but most of them I do. And I think what will tend to happen is I'll listen to the soundtrack a few times and then the music will be a lot more noticeable yes. when we watch it again mm. um, i mean out of interest what are your like favorite movie soundtracks or scores i love the about time soundtrack uh score maybe the same i don't know but i know it's a beta canster because i love about time yeah. but there's some great songs on there and of course we can shout out the podcast we did on your show sarah yes. where we talked about all the about time soundtrack stuff and of course extra love for the about time soundtrack because of ron sexsmith and what his music in that led to with Lara in my school and Sir Elton John. Awesome. Yeah. Third episode of Life as a Playlist was the About Time soundtrack, and that was really fun. So, is there anything more to say about the uh, the bit that we had with Daniel and Sam? Yeah. Uh, the song that it slides into is Too Lost and You by the Sugar Babes, I think. Yeah. Actually, I really like that. Well, am I allowed to go a little bit outside the, the scene? I don't want to take over everyone else's yeah. minutes, but. Yeah, go ahead. But yeah. I just. I really like their relationship because the story on the surface is about like first crushes and about just even addressing, even though he's so young, like, is there just that one right person? And it's really even more for me about the father and the son relationship and like that love between the father and the son and how he's like teaching him how to like, grow into being a man like he lost his wife and the boy lost his mother and i think their relationship yeah so he's he's kind of been forced into adulthood (laughs) too young and it's kind of yeah him him treating his son like an adult because through losing his mother he's kind of had to become yeah but it's also like i think it's 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 sweet it's good parenting i don't know to me it's like he's such a good (laughs) he's such a good father he really listens to his son and you just see yeah. like that teaching and shaping. And acknowledges that his son's problems seem, however important they are in the grand scheme of things, seem important to him at that time. Yeah. And I think that that is, a, that is an adult approach, which I think I'd imagine a lot of parents will probably struggle with. Because, well, it's the same thing in a way as to teen movies and what John Hughes did for them, in the idea that very few adults seem to remember when they're adults as to how important all these things that seem so insignificant now were absolutely and we're getting to see that first crush and like those feelings and his father's recognition of that and just a funny first crush story i actually remember the first crush i ever had because i was about that age i was in fifth grade and i just i'd had a dream about the boy that i had a crush on in school and i woke up and i was just like what the heck like I, cause I didn't understand, like, I never had a crush on anyone before, and it was just weird. And then, like, I just 
like the feeling spiraled. I kept having the same feelings. Actually, I had a crush on the same boy all the way through eighth grade. Ended up writing a letter to him in my notebook that I had no intention of him ever seeing, just like middle school girl stuff. So <laughs> it ended up falling, I believe, out of my notebook. And then the popular girls in the class took it and gave it to the teacher. <laughs> and I was just not surprisingly like... This is such a it's 90s so teen true movie. It's so true that, like, it's so oh, funny. Wow. Like, it sounds like I'm <laughs> lying. This literally happened. So, so the, I walk into the class, like, we were changing classes, and I walk in, and I hear something, and I'm like, what is this? And then I realized I was hearing my own words, and I was like, why am I hearing my own words? And then I realized the teacher was standing there reading oh. my letter, like, out loud to the popular kids. Oh. And my my wow. best friend was like, we had, like, desks that were, like, two by two. So she was, like, my desk mate. And she's like, you should just leave. Like, just walk out. Like, this is ridiculous. Just take the... And I was like, no, that's not who I am. I was so mortified. Like, I was literally about to die. But I'm like, no. That is Awful. I went and I sat at my desk and I just pretended like nothing happened. Like I refused to give them a facial expression. I refused to let, let them see I was upset. It was so Was that boy in that class? Yes, he was in the class and he <laughs> actually ended up, I had no idea, he actually ended up liking me too and we started going out after that. So the story actually had a happy ending. He was like my first little boyfriend. It was... I feel like I need to buy no. your film rights like right now. <laughs> and yeah, no, that was so I feel like you touched a little bit on that in an episode of your podcast, but I don't remember you talking yeah, about Yeah, I've mentioned that boy before yeah. because just first crushes and all of all of that and like one of the middle school like yeah. bullying stories that I told, but yeah, that was <laughs> that was just such a wild moment. I actually after leaving class, so I mean I was so not going to give anyone a reaction in that moment. But my grandma was actually the secretary. I went to a Catholic school, like a small little Catholic school, and my grandma was the secretary. So I was really lucky because at lunchtime, I just went into her office and like in the back and just cried for like a good while. And then we had a talk and she's just like, she gave me a very important lesson that I still remember to this day. She's like, don't put anything in writing you don't want the world to know. And this was pre-social media. Mm. But when we think about that now and we think about like people being canceled yes. or we think about people doing horrible things and it's like in writing, we just, words are important. We have to be be really mindful about the things that we say and the things that we right and <laughs> yeah it's it's one of it's one of the kind of relief i guess of being someone who is growing up in cancel culture especially as someone who is trying to i assume it's probably the same for you nicholas someone who's trying to establish ourselves in like you know in a known industry where if you're successful you're a household name sort of thing it's it is a sort of point where you have to think about everything before you post it in case someone misinterprets a tongue yeah. say or you know one tongue-in-cheek joke to right. a friend that's publicly on twitter and can... it's also just soundbite culture yeah. you know you get just a few words or a sentence or a tweet and don't really understand i mean obviously i do think there are certain things that just cross the line that there aren't really good excuses or explanations for but a lot of times things are also out of context and we have to be really mindful like that joke that you would have just told or that comment you would have just had with a friend you can't really do that on social media because well it was a few it was a few years ago but there was the guy on youtube who got his dog to do the nazi salute um yeah. 
for his uh, it was for his girlfriend i think it was what he thought what would be the most horrible thing that mm. i could get my dog to do outrageously hilarious yeah. and i in terms of of um, soundbite culture won't say what the phrase he was that he said that made the salute happen <laughs> yes i th- in my personal view i am not in any position to to say whether it's offensive or not because i haven't had to go through what people went through at that time but with that context i think it was fine and quite funny but i also understood why people were offended by it and but i think the most i don't know what this guy's apology was in the end or if he did it but the most legitimate apologies that i genuinely will forgive someone for in cancel culture is if they just say i messed up they just know what they've done is wrong they said yeah there's no excuse for it but please just give me another chance, then yes, yeah. I will. Yeah, and mostly yeah. I will too. Like, I, I genuinely believe, and part of my job as a teacher, I'm not sure, Luke, if you know this or not, but I actually teach, well, did until coronavirus, um, teach an immense maximum security prison. So I teach face-to-face with men who have um, life without parole sentences. So I'm a big believer in transformation and that you should have the opportunity to rectify wrongs and that you should have an opportunity to change your life and change yourself but that comes with doing yes work. and i have yeah. i have a similar view because my both of my parents have worked with people coming out of prison I, i'm definitely very keen for the second chance thing and uh it was in a way I, I, of course it's me managing to turn this into a plug it's in a way what i try to do with addiction in my film unstable it was the um because we also my family run this community center in our area where i've met a lot of people who are coming out of prison or have had addiction problems with other stuff and i see how the rest of society treats them whereas to me that's just tim that's just james i don't know i'm picking up names but essentially um so i kind of noticed how people were being treated and so with unstable it was my way of kind of going this is a normal person who's just made a mistake and needs help getting out of their problem whether that is what it succeeded in doing or not i don't know but a lot of people who'd been through that sort of stuff who'd seen unstable said that they agreed with it so So just explain to (laughs) me if you don't mind a little bit more what unstable is or like what it was that you were plugging yeah so it was a 20 minute short film i made last year which was it was about a guy called adam who he was a casual marijuana user and he's meeting this girl um this girl no, so this girl comes and talks to him and they instantly have some sort of romantic connection. Uh, but while he's talking to her, he gets a phone call that his dad's unwell and has only got a few months to live. And kind of through all of that and through all the pressure, his dealer ends up offering him something harder and he takes the offer and he slowly, as a sort of relief from society, enters a spiral of addiction whilst she's trying to help him out of it and at the end it's kind of how it screws up all of his relationships um and it it, it's kind of left on a on a loose end of we don't we see him the film ends on him asking for help we don't know whether he gets better or not and that's how i wanted to leave it (laughs) no that seems like the perfect place to leave it and i'll definitely have to check that out and i like that it touches on both addiction and trauma because trauma is often the this is what i see teaching in prison all the time it's trauma that fuels addiction trauma and separation disconnection from other people and that 
feels that in most of my students as well. It's like they were very young when they were incarcerated. They were 16, 17 years old, had really early life trauma, have always been just kind of in the in the system, like foster care, um, juvenile hall, and you make one or two bad decisions and it snowballs. And yeah, so it's really good that you made that film. I'll have to check it out. But yeah, it was also quite weird because before then, the only other stuff I'd made was comedy. Mm-hmm. So making a film where after the first screening, people were coming out crying, it was yeah. kind of, it took a moment to realize that that was a good thing. Because yeah. <laughs> you see all these people you've made cry right. and it's like, I feel like a bad person. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but, but on no, top I of think, it, they're think, crying okay. because they're thinking, because you, because you created empathy, and that's why. So that's awesome. Yeah, hopefully we'll get some screenings at some point <laughs> um, <laughs> that won't just keep getting postponed. Then, like the annoying thing is that I had several venues like just before lockdown that I'd agreed, and we were going to like spread out like uh, only like a tour of my county, but load of community centres. We're going to like do it over the year and all places, and then it was like nope never mind uh, yeah i know it's theater i mean obviously you know my y- youngest is an actress they just did an entire show over zoom that was so stress <laughs> so stressful and i, I saw on, i saw on facebook people. about it and if, yeah. the, if the times weren't awful i was gonna like weren't terrible for me i was gonna tune in because was it romeo and juliet yes yeah and yeah because my my sister's studying that at the moment so i thought oh yeah and then i saw the time and it now that's midnight. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> that's fine. I'll send you no pressure to ever watch it, but I can send you like the link to the final, you know, edited oh, version. Yeah, just I'll, to... <laughs> I'll send it over, yeah. See how it works out to to do a play on on Zoom, but how yeah. did we go from Jack and Judy to <laughs> I don't know. We went through a long part. We can get back on yeah. track with Karen's house if we want. We, we went oh, into council pe- culture as well. Yes, it was uh, it was yeah. parenting, treating people like adults. Yeah, uh, I mean, some slide might... into cancel culture. I don't know. Yeah, if yeah. I might just add a comment about cancel culture. Sure. Um, if you think about it, uh, in society, there's always been a level of uh, vindication for um, what is considered wrong, and what we taking it back even what twenty or thirty years ago, that would have been done by the tabloid media or uh, more by the tabloid media, because, I mean, the press um, definitely back then and now are seen as vultures, whereas now it's almost like the court of public opinion is almost a tabloid social media. It's just like anything that might be interested in and anything that could cause offence or interest or literally any visceral emotion will be put on social media with or without the person's consent, just for people to have an opinion on, at least at a higher level. Um, So, of course, when you've got the case where, uh, especially people growing up in council culture, it's oddly, it's a mix of comforting and very scary, um, saying that that's just life in general. You you don't know what's happening, so you just do what you can and try not to be a prick. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Oh, anyway, just realized it's almost one thirty. Well, one thirty here, my time. So I'm gonna have to finish to pretty about soon. The necklace. Um, <laughs> what do we think about the necklace? So the scene for me overall was just how it's difficult. Well, not the scene specifically, but their storyline is how it's difficult to 
maintain that level of passion in a marriage. And both of them kind of had their own side storyline, their own side thing going on. It's like we want, we try to seek everything in one person, which is really hard. Like if somebody is your best friend and they're your lover and they're, you're this and you're that. And it's hard to maintain that level of relationship through 20 years, through 30 years, through an entire marriage. So I think the storyline does a good job of depicting that. It doesn't do a very good job of showing how they work through it because neither one of them are handling that very well. Like they're going outside the marriage rather than talking to each other and negotiating things and just being honest with each other in the marriage. While society and this film, quite rightfully so, are obviously against infidelity, they don't make it black and white in any case. Right. Like, with with Mark trying to break up Peter and Juliet, and with this, you see their actions as wrong, but you also understand the intentions behind them. Exactly. Which I think is a very brave way of making film. Yes, I agree. Yeah, I mean, it almost brings out the human side of yeah. why people would do actions like this. Which, in a way, I think makes it harder to see, especially with... I mean, A, you feel so sad for um, for Alan Rickman as Harry, for every action that he does, where at first I think you you see before he does what he's going to end up into. You He thinks that everything's fine and in control, and then you, you as the audience can see things are going to go wrong. And you see yeah. it slowly spiral out of control in such a way that you feel sorry for his actions, but still like him as a character. And yeah. I think that's that's important. I think the reason for that is that you see Mia flirting with him before you see that he's married. So part of you is already invested in his and Mia's relationship before you realize it's wrong. Yeah, that uh, makes that's a... the only way I could figure it out. And that took several viewings to realize. <laughs> Yeah, I like it. So I'll, I'll just go through the dialogue of this scene. There's not very much, um, which is Karen says, explain to me why you're so late. He says, oh, for goodness sake, woman, I can't the man have secrets. Well, hurry up. You've been waiting for hours. It's the first ever preview. Well, the, there was like there's a bit of dialogue there that I can't I kind of pick up on because obviously she keeps talking about. So I can't remember something or other. And then he gives quite a very irritated response, like he's kind of sick of her. And, like, I guess I kind of picked up on that. But, like, I I get Alan Rickman's, like, frustration. But then I also get that she is his wife. And, like, that's who he's married to. So he needs, like... Obviously, um, Karen takes his coat, hangs it up. She feels something in the pocket. And then she's like, what is it? I think I'll nose about. You eat the no. I'm sorry. But even if... I know they're married and stuff, but she shouldn't have been snooping, especially around Christmas. No, exactly. She's kind of find. she's kind of ruined it for herself. Exactly. There, there is there is a difference between squeezing presents under the tree and actively searching someone's pocket. Yeah, like I, I don't know. Like as as much as like I do like their story, um, like that bit kind of just kind of irritates me because I'm like, no, that's a bit far in it. Yeah, it kind of be better if she spotted him at the um when when he's at the the necklace thing with the, the exchange of Brian Atkinson scene. If she saw him buying it from a distance and then walked yeah. off, and that was how she found out. I think that would have been better than 
than the the way that that scene ended and this bit here because yeah it does it it does seem a bit people do it yeah but it does seem a bit weird <laughs> unless people it's kind of the it. payoff it, it could be the payoff where like um you can see uh, Rickman's character is very he doesn't want to let um what is it Emma's character see the necklace being bought so it's almost a comedy where he tried so hard to conceal it, and then she just finds out anyway by snooping. Yes, like... that's true. That's true. Yeah, and then we see a little bit of the the play with Karen. Uh, well, Karen reading. It was a starry night in ancient Jerusalem, and the baby Jesus was in his manger. And you see the daughter, and I can't remember what her name is, um, playing a lobster. And she, this, this actress has since spoken out very recently about how she. I think she described. This film is a sexist piece of shit. <laughs> uh, so there we go. Yeah. And it was weird because the first time I saw this, and even a few weeks ago, I was more of that mindset. And just watching it last night, yes, a lot of parts of this film are sexist, but there are a lot of really deep, meaningful, interesting relationship yeah. storylines going on. So it was easy to get upset or dismissive about it at first but then there is only one scene in the film yeah (laughs) there is only one scene in the film that stops it from failing the Bechdel test which is the scene where uh, Karen is talking to her daughter about her being the lobster in the school play Uh. but whilst the Bechdel test works for the most part it's a film called love actually it's about relationships Yeah, if I'm watching a relationship film, if I'm watching a romantic comedy, if I'm watching... This isn't a film I'm expecting to pass the Bechdel or any other test. It's like you kind of know what genre you're watching, and so... I, I Part of me, I, I, I've been, I've got a tiny idea in the works, I don't know whether I'll cut this or keep this in, about making a rom-com that twists those expectations. Like, a rom-com that's set in the film industry, between two people in the film industry... And that, for example, he makes a big romantic gesture and she still says no. Yes. Or, for example, one of the scenes that stops it from failing the Bechdel test could be two female writers talking about ensuring that their film doesn't fail the Bechdel test. That kind of like tongue-in-cheek discussion where the audience know, ah, we see what you're doing there. Just meta. Yeah, I want meta, but not too meta as to feel like you have to be a film person to love it. Yeah. Which, if it's okay, it's kind of transitions this conversation into the language school or the final yeah, scene in this sure. segment, which, jumping to the end part of the scene, we can go back, which is the big public proposal. I'm yeah. so, get like, <laughs> that's one of the tropes I don't like. That's like one of the real life things that I don't yes. like either is giant public proposals, especially if you're not very close with that person you haven't both discussed that that's something that you want to do i feel like it puts so much pressure on the woman and i say the woman because almost all the time of course it's the man doing the asking it puts so much pressure where like everyone is looking at us and then if we turn that guy down um or we turn it's just you feel pressured to say yes in a situation i mean with with public proposals it's almost like if you're going to do it ethically, if there is even an ethical way to do it because there's a loophole, but if you're going to do it in a way that isn't terribly pressuring, you almost pre-propose. You basically say, oh yeah, do you want to marry me? Yes, no. 
you do the initial proposal exactly. and then you yeah. say, okay, do you want to do it in public so we get attention? And then yeah, you in a way, like, I... for like, is it moral when you're attention seeking? Yeah, like my, my parents didn't do this in this way. I don't think they had a public proposal, but it would work in such a way that about six months into my, my parents dating, they had talked about marriage and my dad had bought a ring that my mum knew about. Mm-hmm. So she was just waiting. I think it might have been like a year or two for the actual proposal to happen. But she knew and was fine with knowing that it was inevitable. Yes. I think if it's a relationship like that, then a grand gesture is fine because you know yeah. their answer's going to be yes. Exactly. Mm. I agree. So, but when said... they literally haven't spoken to each other in the no. same language, <laughs> it's a bit, yeah, it's a bit much, which is why for a, for a while, until I asked Richard about this and he said it wasn't the case, I think of, I still think of it as a way that love actually is to rom-coms what Scream is to horror movies. It's playing with the tropes and yes. allowing you to realise how silly they are. Yeah. And one of the good things about this this storyline and i agree with the playing with the tropes which is why again i think it was easier to dismiss or dislike this film earlier on and then i actually needed repeat viewings to get beneath the surface a little bit more and get some of what richard curtis was doing a little bit more one of the things as a comp professor that i like about this scene is showing the nonverbal aspects of love because mm. essentially i mean they are falling in love without speaking the same language and most of communication 65 to 90 percent of it stone research is nonverbal and i really like that depiction of even if they're not using the same words how you like through your nonverbal communication can fall in love yeah sure and i think it is it is sweet. It's it's never been one of the stories I'm most invested in in a film. But that's yeah. just because some of them are really strong. Like we've talked Daniel yeah. and Sam, there could easily be a feature film in that. Yeah. Mm. And you can see how strong it is in the fact that I edited it out of the film. I made a, I think it's about half an hour, a short film just out of Daniel and Sam's story. I added a couple of the deleted scenes in, but I edited it, and you don't need to have seen the rest of the film to watch that film. Yeah and enjoy it you, you might watch it and think oh that's a bit weird that they got rowan atkinson in the background at that moment <laughs> but outside of that you kind of just enjoy it as its own standalone story it's where a couple of the issues lie for example whilst i i said before i love jack and judy there they have a very loose connection to the rest of it but if you edited all their scenes together it would be too close you need the the separation and the, the other between the other stories in order to yes. have that. And Richard Curtis was very keen to have that couple in the film. I think he it was something like um, he said to us that the uh, the company had basically said if you cut the naked couple out, we'll get about we'll raise about fifty million more. And he said, oh. "How about we don't?" And they just didn't. And that yeah. was it. <laughs> so I respect that. The listeners can hear more about that in the two, last episode of Two Minutes About Time, where we talked to Richard Curtis for about 40 minutes. A lot of discussion about love actually in there as well. Um, and we do try and uh, figure out a mysterious extra. Uh, but of course, Richard does not remember the name of a random extra in the background of one scene. Yeah. Uh, but we had to ask just in case. Yeah. Because he has a thing with his films about featuring like friends and family in them, in oh, like okay. small roles. So I don't know, Nicholas, have you seen About Time? Uh yes, I have once before. A uh, bit of time okay. Ago, so yes. there's a there's a scene there's a scene near the end where you see young Tim, yeah, uh, on a beach. 
that's yeah. played by Richard's son, Charlie. Oh, okay. Um, in this film, for example, at the start, when you're meeting all of the people who are working for the Prime Minister, you meet Pat the housekeeper, who's played by Jill Freud, his mother-in-law. Oh, okay. <laughs> Oh, okay. His dog also features in About Time. I think his other sons are in one scene in the wedding, I think. But essentially, there is, he does feature like friends and family as extras in his films. So I I, I thought it was worth asking him about this random extra just in case. Um, But no, and for example, his daughter Scarlett does appear in this film also towards the end. It kind of links to this. When you see the final school play, she is second lobster. Oh, wow. And in fact, this links to something quite interesting, which I saw shared on Twitter by Emma Richards' girlfriend, uh, which was a uh, statistics have proven that uh, children who play Mary and Joseph in school plays, there is a correlation between them having a higher income in life. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. Well, I I kind of saw a similar thing basically saying who you played in in the school plays kind of correlates to what you do in life and your socioeconomic position and your projection and stuff like that. It feels almost like it could be true, but also it could be similar to to astrology when you're that far in. Yeah, it could be vague, but there, there is enough for you to think that that if you tell them your lead material, then they will push themselves further. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. that makes so, sense. But, but then if I look at my school nativity plays, um, first I was choir. Second, I was an alien. Third, <laughs> okay. I was chicken. Um, and then I rounded it all off by playing God. Oh, okay. <laughs> we did um, some I mean, weird God nativity is a pretty, plays. <laughs> God is a pretty solid character to get. <laughs> Yeah, um, um, which quite humorously, um, I counterpart, I counteracted with um, this year. If it wasn't for COVID, in our school production, in our like secondary school musical, I was playing Satan. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh wow! Wow, from apparently Lord of Light, Lord of Apparently they, apparently they didn't deliberately cast the only Christian in the drama department <laughs> as Satan, uh, but it was quite funny. Oh wow! I, I I found it so fun because it was a jukebox musical. I had to sing Crocodile Rock and Fire, and beautiful. <sighs> I mean, with my nativity, almost every single time, if I remember correctly, I have been a shepherd. Ev- almost without doubt, <laughs> shepherd. Just it's almost as if they precast every year. Just yeah, you're going to be a maybe shepherd. they do. Yeah. Did you ever have auditions, or was it just cast on the spot? Um, I mean. Like, my, all of my school activities, I'm going to assume it's the same for you, have only happened um, in in primary school. So, yeah, I feel like there were slight auditions were no... that weren't really auditions. Yeah. It was kind it was... of just a couple of rehearsals before they'd cast the parts. Yeah. 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 It was it was almost like, we'll, we know who we want for the parts. We'll rehearse if we can see anyone that definitely isn't suitable We'll swap the part, yeah. but at the moment we'll just keep it the same. They definitely. Anyway, let's move on to the end. Uh, I, we, we've we've talked, I think, about the um, about the him them learning the languages. Anyway, uh, yes. what you won't have got, which I'll just touch on briefly before we wrap up, is what they're actually saying. If you've just watched the clips, because I realised that the the clips don't have the subtitles in them for some reason. 
so man one says uh, is saying uh which i think was in english sherlock holmes is not a real detective uh, man two in russian subtitles is saying is this the way to the train station man three says i would like half a pound of cherries woman one says i would like a one-day travel card um jamie says i've got terrible stomach ache it must have been the prawns <laughs> and uh man man five says milton Keynes has many roundabouts um and then jamie says my goodness i think this slides into the next minute actually, the next thing actually but it's he it's him saying my goodness this is a very big fish it tastes delicious <laughs> um but yeah, have we got anything further to say on that? Yeah, yeah. Sorry, obviously we have. <laughs> yeah, the uh, the half pound of cherries or something. For some reason, as you say that, like even if it isn't the language that he was actually speaking, it just reminds me and flicks back to any of the Rowan Atkinson scenes. Um, just yes. over the top, extravagant stuff. It feels almost like that is something that that Rowan's character would have said whilst just flippantly putting anything into the gift wrapping well richard can write rowan atkinson really well clearly because richard co-created mr bean Mm. he co-created black adder like clearly he can write rowan atkinson (laughs) yeah um and i think that i think you can see in some of his other films slight slip over where you think he could have cast rowan atkinson to play this role Um, definitely it, same with people like Hugh Grant. You know, he writes roles. He writes characters that, for a while, were able to be played by Hugh Grant, and then I imagine Hugh Grant got a bit too old or changed the style that he wanted to be. And then you've got other people who I'm not saying he wrote the roles for Hugh Grant because that's not the case. Hugh Grant is an actor who managed to take on the role, so that we now see Hugh Grant when we, you know, hear Hugh Grant when we read those lines, for example. But yeah, he's definitely got certain styles that he writes for and. Rowan Atkinson is is one of those styles. Um, Definitely. Have we got anything more to say before we do our plugs? And I don't have anything to say. Yeah, I think I'm good. Yeah, I think I've already I've said this in like past episodes. Um, it's pretty much that's just kind of adorable, but kind of impossible at the same time. I don't know how a person can learn a language very quickly. Like it's mad, but it's cute. It's cliche, and like the way Colin Firth portrays that character is very good and i'm probably being very biased there but luke you already knew that yeah okay so we'll start with you sarah where can our listeners find you on social media or as a podcast or all of that stuff plug away so i just finished a show called pump up the minute which looked at pump up the volume with co-host robert black Looked at the film two minutes at a time. You can follow Pump Up the Minute on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Also host Life as a Playlist, which is my music slash life story slash social political commentary show. And you can follow Life as a Playlist on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And Robert and I are also getting started on Five Minute Arrival, where we're going to look at the film Arrival five minutes at a time. I still haven't seen Arrival, but we had to watch the first five minutes of Arrival in film the other day. Oh, nice. <laughs> um, so that was um, that was good. But like with Pump at the Minute, for example, like that is one of the fastest turnaround, most productive MXM shows I've known of. Like it, it's just like you announced it and then you started instantly. It was it yeah. was incredible. We did so, three shows a week. Well Monday, done with Wednesday, that. Friday. Thank you. <laughs> just went right through it. <laughs> 
I still need to see the film and then start listening, but it's been on my list as it was just kind of like, how on earth did you get through that so quickly? <laughs> I think you possibly like recorded and edited all of these shows between me, like recording and editing two episodes of this. It was quite a sort of, whoa, okay. Um, uh, so where can the listeners find you, Nicholas? Uh, yeah, so um, Nicholas J. Barlow is the name that I go by publicly. I, I mean... I don't know whether this is too much of a brag, but if you just search Nicholas J, not the name J, the letter J, Barlow into Google, I own the first page, or at least in Britain. Um, so, I mean, that's something that I didn't realise would ever happen, but clearly that's a unique name. Um, anyway, uh, if you want to find me on any We're social media... My <laughs> <laughs> if If you want to find me on any social media anywhere... Um, It'll be at NJ Barlow, but the zero is uh, the O is substituted for a zero, and that's on any social media that I want people to find me on. I mean, they'll probably find me anyway. Um, and I do a podcast which is called the Unscripted Podcast, which is a relaxed interview format show uh, with no editing, with um, people known or upcoming from the creative and entertainment industries uh by the time this uh comes out um the only episode left to go out if i remember correctly will be with alfie templeman but a previous series of my podcasters uh, have um had film producers and directors and uh, Michael Fenton Stevens for anyone that knows the name. Uh, but yeah, if you follow if you don't me, know the name, anywhere, you'll, know his, you'll know his work almost guarantee. You've seen or you'll know his face. You'll know his face. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, he's got a distinctive face, not to say he, you know, you know, when you've got people who have distinctive faces. Um, yeah. So yeah, well, it, 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 still, it surprised me. I, it was today. I found out he was in Mr. Bean. Yeah. That was like, that was a shocker because he was, you know, obviously quite younger back then. It was kind of like, I, I went back to that episode and I was like, oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So if you just look at anywhere on social media, I use Twitter and Instagram the most, but I'm sure if you find me on Facebook or anywhere like that, uh, you'll be able to just send me a message and get a link or just look at any of my work on there. I post quite regularly on there. Brilliant. Lara? Um, you can find me on Instagram, Lara Collier underscore official. You can also find me on Facebook, Lara Collier Music. Um, you can also get my song, Moving On, which was in Luke's short film, Unstable. Yes. Yeah. Oh, I'm forgetting everything. There was going to be a cinema screening of Unstable. We were going to play the music, Moving On music video and all of that. But then lockdown. Um, so that might happen next year, hopefully. It's a lovely cinema that we're very keen to screen on stable. Uh, okay. Um, so you can get moving on on iTunes, Amazon Music, Spotify, all that jazz. And you can also like watch the music video at Bottle O Productions, where you will find another music video um, I did called The Happy Song. Yes, brilliant title. And then I also have my own YouTube channel. It's just Lara Collier. And I've done an original song called A Thousand. And I've done a cover of Burn from Hamilton. So, yeah, that's where you can find me. Okay, brilliant. For me, uh, I don't come up first when you Google me, uh, but if you search my actual full name, if you search Luke Allen Horton on Google, Horton's about H-A-U-G-H-T-O-N, then I'm pretty sure I come up top. Uh, but 
Uh, I'm available on Twitter at llama underscore bottle zero. I created my Twitter when I was like 12. I've now got it on 500 business cards. So that's staying as my at. Um, I was, I'm on Instagram at the Ginger Luke, on Facebook at Luke Allen Film. All podcasts, radio appearances, newspaper articles, short films, anything I'm remotely involved in is at Luke Allen UK. Um, this show is on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at two. No, it's not. That's two minutes of our time. This show oh. is on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Christmas Act Pod. They can also find us on IMDb. But yeah, uh, we will be back um, next episode on Thursday the, tw- the 17th. So tomorrow for the listeners um, is... Uh, sorry, my notes just got really confusing. As uh, Jamie is learning language in a, in a college centre. <laughs> um, Emma Thompson is smiling at wrapped presents, I've got written down. And then um, Colin goes to America and meets some girls. Um, so, with yeah. his uh, backpack full of condoms. Indeed, I I, I can't believe my note that says Emma Thompson smiling at Rap Present. <laughs> it's just well, that's noteworthy, apparently. Um, so yeah, if listeners want to find out how important that smile supposedly is, then they should listen tomorrow. <laughs> Thanks so much to both of you for joining us uh, for today's episode, and goodbye. Thank you. Thank goodbye. you for having me. The Christmas Actually theme is performed by Ethan O'Mahony and is a cover of God Only Knows by the Beach Boys. Christmas Actually is produced by Bottolo Productions and is distributed by Lemming Drops Studio. For more podcasts and blogs, visit lemmingdrops.com.